Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Welcome to Outer Heaven. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bot. I am Brian, hello. Today's episode is Lingua Franca, our ninth episode on Metal Gear Solid V. Today, we round out the African theater of this game and our main cast, finally meeting both Eli and Co-Talker. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. The second act of The Phantom Pain takes place in Africa, a continent that's old hat for the Metal Gear saga. The original Metal Gear on MSX had Snake infiltrating Outer Heaven, Big Boss's new nation about 200 kilometers north of South Africa, not too far from where our Central African setting is. Of course, at the end of that game, Solid Snake takes down Venom Snake, thinking he is Big Boss. Beyond that, many Metal Gear characters have origin stories in Africa, such as Gray Fox, Solidus Snake, Naomi Hunter, and Raiden. Meanwhile, it's been a theater of war that guys like Ocelot and Kaz have participated in before the events of the Phantom Pain. Amanda, too, spent time there after the Peace Walker incident, fighting with revolutionaries. And Raiden opens up Metal Gear Rising in Africa specifically. But not specifically where. Just Africa. Snake and team run operations against a stretch of land identified as the Angola-Zaire border. Already we can get in some doublespeak as the country Zaire is no longer. Instead, it's the Democratic Republic of Congo, following the First Congo War, of which there were two, that took place at the end of the 20th century. Those wars remain the most violent since World War II, with at least 5.4 million people killed and countless displaced. The legacy of chattel slavery, the Atlantic Passage, and European colonialism leaves its mark on the country still, as wide human rights abuses under the Mobutu regime of the last half of the 1900s endures now into the current regime. Military conflicts are still occurring in the Kivu region, though the country just had their first peaceful transfer of power in ages. The Zaire name is also interesting thematically beyond just being another dual name in this game. While some refer to the country as Zaire colloquially still, that itself is a dead meme, one fading away from collective memory. It's evocative of Skullface, whose memory is not to be found in later Metal Gear timeline events, but his lust for revenge is. And just as Zaire lost out to the Republic of Congo, Skullface's technology such as vocal cord parasites and metallic archaea would lose out to Zero's competing fox dye and nanomachine technology. While the Congo once belonged to Belgium, Angola was once a Portuguese colony, one they got out from under the yoke of in the 1960s and 70s. Resistance to colonizers were focused on three organizations, the Popular Movement for Liberation of Angola, the MPLA, the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA, and the National Front of Liberation of Angola, FNLA. All those acronyms should be familiar to MGSV players. Not only are the names mentioned, but by the time we get to our setting in 1984, these resistant groups were now warring with themselves in the Angola Civil War that stretched from 1975 to 2002. Unida was actually Maoist in origins, originally backed by the People's Republic of China until the Civil War started in 1975. The MPLA were a firmly Marxist-Leninist group, receiving support from Angola Angola's Communist Party proper, and aid from both the Soviet Union and Cuba, including the latter sending thousands of soldiers over. 
It's possible our friend Amanda from Peace Walker was amongst those revolutionaries. Following the expulsion of the Portuguese, the MPLA was able to defeat the FNLA, leaving the MPLA in control, at which point they started nationalizing industries and industrializing, abolishing nearly all private enterprise. Given that those resources included diamonds and oil, the imperialists of the world were not happy. In 1975, UNITA was essentially resurrected with aid from the apartheid state of South Africa, and the U.S. would throw their weight behind them in the 1980s as well. This basically sets the stage for the phantom pain, with the communist-backed MPLA fighting the U.S.-backed UNITA, a proxy war without end. MPLA held most of the coastal region of the country while UNITA the innermost parts. And as you can note from the dates, the seeds of war can often outgrow their ideological soil. This civil war between the two outlasted the Soviet Union by a decade. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about a couple days ago how um, we get these recurring locations. We get Middle East, we get Africa, we get, I mean, we get Central America some. But it's really like, I don't know if it's an explicit political statement, but these are the places that have been America's like playgrounds for the last 50 years, 60 years. And it's just not a coincidence that these are the places that, that where war is more or less endless, at least has been in the past. These are the places that have been, I mean, in universe, these are the places that have been sort of the testing grounds for Zero's concepts of the world, I guess, like his ideas. Mm-hmm. And then by extension, Big Boss's ideas and, and you know, ocelots and, and so and so forth down the line, down the uh, line of influence or the line of succession almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like uh, that's it's another way of pretty expertly weaving in your games lore with like the actual history of the world and in the, all the ways in which these areas of the world have been just sort of picked apart by imperialist powers. I you know I, I think that's something we we've talked about before, but it's it's very explicit in this game because these are the two locations and these are like the two locations on Earth that have been the most ravaged by colonial war over the last i guess maybe southern asia would be the the third area so if there was a third area in this game and it was in like cambodia then we'd be really Mm -hmm. hitting hitting it on the nose here but i i I appreciate that it's the thing that metal gear does best which is making its smashing its lore headfirst into into real life history it's one of my favorite things a video game can do so you love Assassin's Creed, don't you? Yeah. I mean, no, I do like that about Assassin's Creed. Though. Oh, I yeah, they, no, same. I absolutely do, too. I think they generally do it, at least at the, the, the I haven't played one first since three, four. Three games is all I played. But yeah, yeah, the first three games do it pretty well overall. I thought so, yeah. I was thinking specifically of, of Prey, which does that really well, which meshes. Well, there's alternate history because the, the, the backstory of Prey is what if Kennedy wasn't assassinated and then the... Where they go from that is that the U.S. and the USSR have a joint space program. So they reach the moon much faster and make like a moon base and have this, all this infrastructure. But all the infrastructure is like 19, like late 1960s, like modernist looking stuff. It looked great. Oh, yeah, that's cool. It's a really fascinating idea. I love that. The Mbele and Buta tribes in play here also speak to the same themes of colonial conflict. People who once shared the land. But following the removal of European colonizers... All power was handed to the Buta tribe, leaving them Bele on the outside looking in. This is where they would turn to another popular Metal Gear staple, private military companies, or in this game, PFs for private forces. These tribes have to turn to PFs to help fight each other, those being the Central Forces of Africa, or CFA, Zero Risk Security, and Rogue Coyote. The latter two more directly tied to Cypher and Skullface specifically. While the Buta were given the reins to the official power levers, the Mbele were not, and thus having less access for funds to pay for PFs, they had to look elsewhere for troops, child soldiers. As of 2008, it was believed there were 120,000 child soldiers in Africa, which accounts for 40% of the global total. All caveats apply about how hard these numbers are to come by, given that even birth rates and population numbers in parts of Africa are hard to track. This does include children in non-combat roles as well, such as cooks and messengers. Child soldiers are nothing new to Metal Gear. We've talked about them since Raiden showed up in Metal Gear Solid 2 and was a big topic of conversation during our Revengeance episodes. And though we have not covered uh, Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake in depth, 
In that game, Solid Snake meets several children who were saved by the one-eyed uncle. But this game brings all that to the forefront, with actual child soldiers to face. You can't kill them or else it's mission failure. You'll also have to develop a special Fulton device just to extract them. It's harrowing when they do show up on these maps, and definitely one of the dark, more taboo themes that land in this game. Mm -hmm. As mentioned, Angola is rich in diamonds, which are scattered all through the maps of both Afghanistan and Africa. Just like oil, diamonds can be a conflict resource, ones that are used to fund insurgencies and warlords. Despite UN resolutions, UNITA would continue to fund its war efforts against the MPLA using diamonds, which is why this game takes us into a diamond mine for one of its missions, one where we discover the child soldiers, so really a thematic one-two punch. The blood diamonds, the Mafinda oil field, and the heavy plumes of smoke we see covering maps in Central Africa also hit the meme of climate change, one we've seen really take shape in Kojima's mind over the last few games. Snake is outright hired by an environmental NGO to start the Africa missions, and the despoiling of these African lands is evident in nearly every mission set here. There is a straight through line of environmental destruction to mine diamonds and oil, which is in turn used to fuel the war efforts of local groups and proxies, further destroying the land. Many of these struggles may start as ideological wars for capitalism and communism, but after enough blood is spilled, the violence justifies itself and begets more. It creates a cycle and lust for revenge, key to this game's themes. The first mission in today's batch is called the War Economy, and what I just described is the whole point of it. Snake has to eavesdrop on a meeting between the local Unita leader and an arms dealer. The arms dealer is looking to move nukes through this area and pay for transport and security using oil and diamonds. The Unita leader is not thrilled at this, and goes on to discuss how the domination of colonial powers in Africa meant boxing out the locals from employment from private enterprise, which is why the only job to take is that of soldier and mercenary. As uh, Metal Gear Rising said, violence breeds violence. I think we had an episode named that. Yeah. Yeah, I like this this again. Like, I wouldn't say this is a new through line for for Metal Gear, because Metal Gear Solid came out right in that sweet spot of a lot of uh, Japanese fiction that was kind of not so subtly focused on climate change and like from like 94 to like 2000 most obvious champion is of course Final Fantasy 7 which is utterly focused on that that concept but yeah I, I love uh again this is this is good this is the stuff with V that I think works the best it's just all it, it's all the setting I guess like just the, the little the subtle little world building and all the little hints towards I don't know it, it's Again, we I've said this before. V is surprisingly subtle in a lot of ways, and then then Quiet runs around half naked, <laughs> which is like not unsubtle. It's the classic Metal Gear. But I think when people talk about like this game not quote unquote feeling like a Metal Gear, like this stuff is is quintessential Metal Gear. But it doesn't because there's not somebody yelling it at you over a twenty five minute codec call. You know, there's not somebody just sitting you down and explicitly explaining to you what all this means. I think people don't didn't pick it up and that's you know that's understandable you're this series in particular kind of rewires your brain to think a certain way and not getting that same those same pathways you know is sort of off-putting because i definitely i had the same reaction maybe not at this by this point in the game the first like three or four hours i was like oh where's the metal gear stuff and then the silent, and then uh, you know, silent shows up, and and Skullface shows up, and I was like, oh, all right, here we go. But yeah, I, I still really appreciate this kind of storytelling. I want to say it continues in Death Stranding, but I would say that uh, honestly, he kind of backslides a little bit, and and Death Stranding has a uh, a nasty tendency to over-explain its technology to you. Like people will do the same, will do the same different kind of monologue about how piece of thing work, tech works like three different characters will give it to you and it's like i get it i get a game i understand it but this is still like as just as a storyteller this is a really really efficient way to to tell your story infiltrate the platform under enemy control and eliminate their commander the moment they lose their chain of command we'll move in and suppress the rest the enemy have taken some of our staff hostage and are threatening to kill them if they're attacked you can't rely on support from us this time. Anything we do might be seen as an attack. Boss, forgive me. 
Can't believe I let an enemy force in right under my nose. But one thing's for sure, they're gonna pay for it. Make certain of that, boss. So after the Voices mission and the battle with the Man on Fire, the game throws you a bit of a curveball, a mission on Mother Base. One of your platforms is overtaken by a rogue PF, and Snake has to deploy Sans Buddy and without support from Diamond Dogs. The main objective is to eliminate the PF commander, who will be located on the top of the central platform. The story goes that the PF commander Mosquito was a former member of MSF, and wanted revenge on Big Boss, who he believed was responsible for the attack on Mother Base in 1975. Another revenge arc run amok. The mission after that is another big one, White Mamba, and no, this isn't about Brian Scalabrini. This is the debut of Liquid Snake, chronologically, in the Metal Gear Solid saga, going under his given name of Eli. Before we talk about the mission, let's talk about our little rascal clone of Big Boss. I'm not like you! Goodbye, father. I don't need you anymore. Eli, played by Pierre Stubbs, is of course Liquid Snake, but just a wee 12 years old at this point. We covered Liquid Snake properly back in our Metal Gear Solid 1 coverage some 60 episodes ago, but he has lingered on as a phantom in our coverage ever since, namely as the liquid half of Liquid Ocelot. The name Eli likely refers to the biblical Eli, who amongst other things anointed King David. David being the name of Solid Snake, a literal king. For this game, he's an adult military figures that have been torn up to fit him with the red beret on his shoulder. His bare chest sports various tribal necklaces, and he wears a conch shell at his waist. The back of his coat says, never be game over, and has a picture of pig boss, i.e. a pig with an eye patch. This is meant to be evocative of The Lord of the Flies, a book we will speak to next time out, and eventually we'll discuss the Kingdom of Flies cutscenes as well. Born of the Les Infanteries project, Eli and David were separated at birth so that they could be held in reserve if they had to be used to take down Big Boss himself. Eli was taken to England, but in 1979, while in Africa, he escaped his handlers and became leader to a group of child soldiers. Here he would take the name of White Mamba, his first snake codename. In some of the cassette tapes recorded before the hospital incident, Ocelot hints that Eli is loose in Africa and that he thinks the plans with Venom Snake will eventually lead them to the boy. Big Boss had no love for the kid, but didn't want to see him die all the same. There is a red herring in this game at some point, where Ocelot says that Eli and V are not related. In story, it's supposed to make us question whether this is Eli. In retrospect, it's meant to tell us about Venom Snake. You know, breaking it down to its most basic, uh, Eli is just a little guy who lives in your house in this game. <laughs> Very much is. He's just a little guy. And, and like, like most cats, he, uh, he doesn't obey any order. He defies all authority and he exists to torment his captors, who he believes work for him and, and must do his bidding at all times. Yeah, that's a fair analogy. He even attacks Big Boss like <laughs> most cats do. Yeah, he scratches it playfully. Venom treats it like it's a little game, and Eli is fighting for his life. So that's very cat-like. Now he's great. Like it's it's good. It's a smart character to use because it's a character that we know well, but we don't have like it's I guess a slight retcon. But there's nothing that ever says like Eli did not escape captivity in the '80s and live in Africa for a while. Like that's you just got the sense from him in the in MGS One that he had just done a lot. Like he's a lot more experienced than Snake. I guess worldly is the right word, not experienced. Snake is very experienced, but Snake still doesn't know anything about his, you know, his origins. So it makes sense for Eli to be the one to sort of be, get kind of tied, roped in to all this earlier. Snake, uh, Solid Snake, really needs to start as the tool of the American government, yes. kind of like a meathead military guy. He's not like a meathead, but, you know, he's got to have that mentality to break free from. And yeah. Eli just, it doesn't, he doesn't need any of that so they could go in a different direction with him. The only thing I would say that is a little, I guess, concerning lore-wise is that, I mean, we're meant to believe that Liquid adores Big Boss, right? I think he hated him. But it's like fucked up. Like, you know, it's not like but clear like cut. He, he wants to be him, I guess. Yes, yes. He wants to be bigger than him. Yeah. He idolizes him and hates him. Yeah, that'd be a good way to say it. He wants to be bigger boss is really what it is. I guess we're, we're to assume that he does meet the actual Big Boss at some point. 
because if if this interaction is supposed to be his basis for he doesn't respect venom at all he he does has no regard for him whatsoever yeah absolutely so now maybe that would be that would work better if let's say his arc was finished for but let's let's just pretend that it that, you know they wouldn't do that they wouldn't have a major character in the series show up and then not finish their arc in the game that would be crazy but it's still yeah i that's a little but i don't know i think you can you could kind of write away anything though you could just have liquid he changed his mind because he's crazy i don't know i mean you know maybe maybe he like mind melds with psychomantis at some point and gets a different uh you know maybe psychomantis can is communing with the sorrow and he gets like a picture of what big box actually did and he comes to respect him or whatever there's a lot of ways you could write out of that. It's just a little bit of a loose end to me. So for this mission, the entire playing field is basically just child soldiers. Indeed, it's an optional objective to extract 20 child soldiers from this map. I can't remember if you'd have the child Fulton the first time through at this point. I don't think so. Yeah, so I think it is a mission you have to come back to get this objective. Yeah. You'll be working through the village and shipwreck outpost you first saw in P- Pitch Black, and again, nailing that environmental degradation, the map is covered in fumes still. Eli has taken the lawn chair throne in the upper deck of the ship, man-spreading, or boy-spreading, in all his glory. Oh, and a pig's head is on the table in front of him, another nod at Lord of the Flies. The player can either clear the field of child soldiers, or just go take on Eli. Once he's defeated, the rest of them will run away. But you do have to face down Eli and neutralize him without killing him. Uh, so wh- how did you go about doing this uh, boss battle? I kind of stuck around and, and took out a lot of the child soldiers until he just, I think he just ran at me. I remember just turning around and seeing, there. oh, there he was. I just took it. I just had to, I think I died the first time. I think I was killed. Yeah, I think uh, it's a field of vision thing. Once he sees you, um, yeah. at that point, he'll attack you. But yeah, he's uh, he's a little bastard. Yeah, he's a little. He runs around. He's a little scampering little bastard. He's hard to track sometimes. Um, it's a fun fight. It's a very different kind of fight. Like it's just, it's good to have this CQC system have like a CQC based fight. Mm-hmm. It works thematically, and it's just nice to use the system you made. You put so much effort into. I don't know. It's it's fun to have once in a while somebody who doesn't just immediately get owned by all the CQC. It's good. Um, and it's also like a good way to show that Eli himself is, you know, a pretty admirable fighter for a kid. Yeah. Because what, what are you going to do if he starts shooting a gun at Snake? <laughs> it's kind of like a narrative dead end. But um, yeah, because it's also just like a fun system to use. Like it's not like complex. It's just hitting the right triggers and counters yeah. at the right time. But um, it's so well-timed with the animation um, that it's just satisfying to actually time it up right and do it. Very satisfying. And it's a it's a good setting to do it in. It's like, you know, that small little boat. So it's like a couple decks that he runs up and down. And he's like a fast little fucker. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a little bit of a bitch, but... He's a little, little prick. Yeah. Um, some other ways that in subsequent playthroughs you can take him out. Um, with the strongest uh, tranquilizer sniper, you can possibly land a headshot on him from like a nearby like shack on the pier uh, while he's just still sitting in the chair. Um, another thing you can do is uh, sometimes I use the stun arm, which at its full capacity um, can like stun him from up to like 30 meters away. So if you can just like kind of get under him lower level of the boat um, and activate the stun arm, you can take him out in one blow. Can you, can you rocket punch him? That'd be fun. I, I mean, you probably could. I mean, basically every item works in uh, against every enemy if you know how to use it. What about uh, a gun? <laughs> no, that that you cannot do. I wish. Um, in that, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Volgan fight, um, because that was also kind of like you have to do hand to hand and throw him down. Um, there is some gunplay involved in that, but yeah, um, that's the only other minus like a liquid snake, liquid ocelot fight on top of metal or arsenal gear. Those are the only hand to hand fights. With- yeah, he does have a history. He does have history of of uh, doing shirtless fights against snakes. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I didn't even pick that up, but yeah. Uh, pretty much every time you fight a liquid, it's in this kind of manner. And I wonder if like the smaller top of the boat setting was chosen because it is like the top of a Metal Gear or whatever. Yeah, maybe. Snake puts him on the Pequod and takes Eli back to Mother Base, though at every turn, Eli refuses to shake his hand. Boss welcomes him to Outer Heaven, but Eli is on the platform for all of like 10 seconds before he steals a knife and goes for Big Boss, 
but Snake CQCs him away. He pops Eli's shoulder out of place, which he'll pop back in once Eli calms himself. That's lesson one for the kid. Anyone here can use a knife or a gun. What you're gonna learn is how to use your head. Let's move! get that under your belt, then you're free to leave. So going through a chunk of Africa missions now, the first is Close Contact, where there are two prisoners um, set up in a outpost camp, and one has escaped and another is about to be executed, and you basically have to go in and save the two before they are killed. Uh, Not too difficult. Uh, It's a pretty short mission, one of the shortest, I think, in the entire game. During this mission, uh, you'll hear about Uh, cassette players running into human bodies, playing all sorts of languages, but not English. Um, So this is kind of uh, referring back to what we talked about last time out with uh, Devil's House and the Man on Fire. But this is like the mention of not English, which is setting up the English vocal cord parasite. Also, when you return to Mother Base after this episode, Quiet will try to, quote unquote, kill a soldier by sticking a knife down his throat. But it's actually something where she knows that that soldier has a vocal cord parasite on him um, and is trying to like go in and get it out of his like throat, which theoretically would also kill him. But that's really what's going on, something we don't realize until a little bit later on once we get Code Talker on board. The next mission is Aim True, Ye Vengeful, which is just basically lots of child soldiers. I can't even remember what else you're doing in this mission, but... (laughs) This After this mission is when uh, the mother base outbreak begins. This is where one of the vocal cords parasites um, starts running amongst, amongst your people. And you have to like go through and identify everyone who has like the who's in quarantine. You have to build a quarantine platform and you have to look at what languages they speak to figure out how to sort out who needs to be in quarantine and who doesn't. That actually happens a little bit later, but yeah. Yeah, figured I'd just mention it right now. Uh, the next mission is Hunting Down, where you have to just basically capture a human trafficker before he gets to a base. Um, he kidnaps people for Skullface, and it's through tracking him down and theoretically extracting him or getting intel out of him that you learn that the specimens come from deep in the forest, which is setting up where you'll find Code Talker and his parasite research. You'll get Eli's Challenge as a side mission now, which is also just like fighting him once again, kind of on Mother Base. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to the boss fight, but it's just an ad- added mission and you get a little more Eli discussion here. And you can throw him into walls, which is, I did a lot. Yeah, it's much easier. All the handrails make it real easy. And then the next mission is Root Cause, where you have to find an Intel member who will point you to where Code Talker is, the old man who knows about the disease that's affecting Mother Base and how to treat it. This gets us to the next mission, called Code Talker, one I personally replay a lot. You have one landing zone for infiltration at one end of the valley. At the other is a mansion in which the old man will be found. While the mansion is heavily guarded, the valley is surprisingly not. This is until a heavy mist falls over it. It's time for another Skulls battle, this time a sniper fight. So the Skull Sniper battle, basically you have to fight four Skull Sniper unit members and they're all sporting uh, solid eyes or something very similar to what we saw there. And you also get some really good shots of their asses as they walk up. Uh, the male gaze is on full effect here for these uh, sexy snipers without skin, kind of. Uh, but they do have tight butts and low necklines as you'd expect from Kojima. There's four snipers that move around um, across the hillside. Like you start at the base of a valley, so they have complete elevation on you. Um, And they kind of teleport and transport around. So um, if you spot them and hit them, um, they will quickly relocate and disappear. So if you had marked them, they will, you know, kind of lose that marking and you'll have to reacquire them. Very similar to the quiet fight. This is where quiet and D-Dog can both be effective buddies if you need them. Um, because they can help locate the snipers for you, and Quiet, of course, cannot help actually attack them for you if you need that. During the fight, some will charge you, like um, while you're sitting there trying to take your sniper position. Uh, you like one of one or two of them may like try to disappear and come up and try to attack you with their like meta- metallic Archaea blade, um, which you either have. 
I don't know if you can CQC these guys because I never got the trigger, but I just pulled out like my small machine gun and kind of just blew them away until they ran away. Uh, this fight is also one you can avoid entirely. You can work your way past them without getting your ass shot, or um, you can just hop in a tank and then you can just drive all the way down to the end of the valley where there's a couple cracks you can climb up on the other side of the snipers. Um, you still have to stay low to the ground once you climb up the cliff. Um, but if you, you can basically crawl your way to the mansion and just bypass them in full. Um, but if you do avoid the fight, it does change what happens after you acquire Code Talker, which we'll come back to in a second. And there is an extreme version of this mission, which I also like to play. It's very same idea, except one shot from either of the four snipers will knock you out and game over. I remember distinctly the first time through, I think I saw the clip of it. There's a little like rock outcropping, I want to say about a third of the way up that I just kind of hid behind. I took out three of them in like 30 seconds there because I, they couldn't hit me. And I just like they all lined up. It was almost like a like a movie sniper scene where it's like uh, Barry Pepper's in the tower now. Bang, bang, bang. Like it was very kind of comical almost. I had a really fun time with it. And then the fourth one charged me and almost killed me and I had to run away. And I had a great time with this the first time. I I think I played it. I would guess I played it the most of any edition of this game because I've definitely done it two or three times. So I, I don't know if it's the best mission of the game, but I think it's the most classically Metal Gear. Yeah, it's got a good mix of stuff. Um, I also want to throw out um, if you're doing some of the later super hard missions to accomplish them or S rank them, you need to use some of the parasite gear. Yeah. And to do that, you need to defeat skulls and extract them to get like mist particles to use for the stuff. So. Um, when I say I replay some of these skull missions, some of it's also because I need to like farm their like inventory for stuff I need. Yeah, uh, but I think it's it's kind of linear. It's expansive. There's two or three different areas to sneak through, classic Metal Gear style. I mean, the, the most classic Metal Gear thing I can think of is going from like a military or just like like a cold exterior military setting into like a nice warm mansion. Like, that's the classic Metal Gear juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Just thinking of uh, going down all those cold, bare hallways, and then you're suddenly fighting Psycho Mantis in, like, a nice boardroom. Yeah, even, like, the, what's it called? The South America maps and Metal yeah. Gear Solid 4 have that a little bit. Yeah, no, it's good. There's even a couple rope bridges, because the when you go up the valley, it's yep. a couple, like, different elevations, and they're rope bridges that may make you think of Metal Gear Solid 3. It's very classic. Also, the jungle area is very Metal Gear Solid 3. So it is a little bit of a nostalgia trip a little bit in this one mission. It's also, uh, thinking of uh, MGS3, there's there's times you'd be outside in like the dense forest, and then you go into like a nice little scientific outpost. Everyone's got like warm wood paneling. Mm-hmm. Lots of wood paneling. That's a classic Metal Gear trope for me, which is true because that's, that's true to life because that's a classic 60s and 70s design choice. So, hey, mm-hmm. we love modernism. Uh, one thing I'll also add, I I apparently never found this rock cropping where all three of them would line up uh, because if you hit them and they disappear, they usually fall back. So you do generally have to work your way up the valley and up the cliffside to keep finding them. And sh- well, they didn't they weren't lined up like together. I was at a spot where I could look over the top like part of it and they all were like on screen at the same time. And one of them, okay. I, I this is this is like 10 minutes into the fight. So I'd, I'd hit them all a few times. But I hadn't gotten any other yet, and I was getting frustrated. And then I think I took them all out in one or two shot, like one shot from where they were. Like they all happened to be in my field of vision with one shot left. And I was just like, well, let's try to take this one out. Bang. Oh, that one's dead. Let's try the next one. Bang. It was very comical. Okay. Yeah. I was like, why did you do that? Why did you just let me kill you? Um, and then I was almost disemboweled by the last one. That was fun. Uh, this is uh, because I had to. Uh, there aren't a lot of rock outcroppings on the way, or they're very small or minimal. Like you can only get behind them, but you can't really like maneuver behind them. Yeah, this is one spot where um, I, in the extreme version, I was playing on my latest replay. I got pinned down with two snipers. Where if I emerged at all, like their sights were on me. This is where I found the best use for the active decoy. Um, cause I threw it like elsewhere and then I popped it up. So the, you know, big inflatable, big boss shows up. Um, and then both of their sniper sites went to the decoy to take that out. And I was able to get out and move to another cover and eventually win the fight. So, um, I wanted to use the active decoy a little more than I did on yeah. this most recent playthrough. Um, but I did find an incredible use for it, which saved my ass. Did it, did it tell them that they're pretty good? It sure did. You're pretty good. 
Making our way to the mansion now, it's a well-fortified square building with lots of tight corners and objects, from furniture to glass bottles. If you know where you're going, you can get there fast, but this is a map I love to clear if I feel like I want to have some fun. I like it. It's a Hitman map. <laughs> well, not as complicated. Eventually, in the basement, we find Code Talker, who we will brief you on now. How do we Silence. Or death. What he could be in here. Stay quiet. Your life depends on it. Code Talker gets his name from the U.S. military usage of Code Talkers, indigenous Americans who use Native American languages to transmit coded messages, specifically during World War II. A language that was spoken by few and undocumented outside of the U.S., it was a powerful tool to the U.S. and Allied forces. Of course, part of the reason it was spoken by so few is due to American settlers devastating the Native American tribes upon arrival and its westward expansion. Code Talker, the character, is Diné, or Navajo, and is over 100 years old by the time Venom Snake saves him from XOF. Code Talker was taken from his parents at a young age and forced into an American Indian boarding school and given the name George, a name that has been a meme in the Metal Gear Saga story since Solidus in Sons of Liberty. At this school, they discourage the speaking of Navajo, threatening to wash out students' mouths with bar of soap if they didn't speak English exclusively. Code Talker would come to resent the English language as it was a vector for cultural genocide against his own people and mother tongue. Code Talker began his research into parasite therapy before World War II and would then aid in signals intelligence using the Navajo language in the Pacific theater of that war. But again, there was resentment. Not only was the USA actively destroying the Navajo people and culture, and with it its linguistic heritage, but what remained of that heritage was being repurposed for war, subsumed into the American project, which exists only to further the American project. Code Talker's prior work on parasites is what got him assigned to analyze the remains of the end and the pain from the Cobra unit, such as they were. Both men did blow themselves up, after all. Learning to use parasites to photosynthesize and control airborne microorganisms would aid in his work with the skulls, quiet, and metallic archaea. Code Talker turned his work on himself, too. Like the end before him and quiet now, he subsists on photosynthesis, not requiring food other than the occasional Kazuhira hamburger, but that is more for taste than sustenance. And yes, we'll be talking about Kaza's hamburgers at some point, too. Who wouldn't want to taste a Kazuhira hamburger? Hamburger desu. Um, yeah, I don't really have much to add, because I think you kind of... Code Talker is a great character, but Code Talker is a very like straightforward character, I feel like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You get, like, the first conversation, you just sort of get the idea of what he's supposed to represent. And he's great. But, yeah, I, I guess he's also a plot character where, like, a lot of the stuff that's interesting about him is how he relates to what's going on with the plot. And it's kind of hard to, like, break down individually, I guess. But I like Code Talker a lot. So it's a fun it's a fun character. Oh, I don't think I mentioned, but Code Talker is voiced by Jay Tavari. Mm-hmm. Upon Venom Snake's entrance, Code Talker asks him to be quiet. Our death is here with us, in our throats, in our words. The parasite has infected your band. Those are its lava. They enter the throat and attach themselves to the vocal cords. They mimic the host's membranes flawlessly. No one can tell the difference. Upon reaching maturity, they mate, sustained exposure, to a particular sound triggers copulation. The resulting larva then feast on the host lungs, killing it. The particular sound. These words. They attack only those who speak a certain language. Not just one. I cannot say which language your parasites are attuned to. But silence is the best way to keep them from laying their children. After ripping some bongs with Code Talker and getting some backstory, Snake's job is to exfiltrate with him. Fulton is out of the question, so you have to make your way to one of two landing zones. One back down the valley the way you came, or further up the hill the mansion was built on. 
At this point, the enemy patrol will be different depending on if you eliminated the skulls or not. If you did, the mansion will be filled with heavy enemy patrols, regardless of what you did prior to finding Code Talker. They will be actively searching not just the mansion, but the entire map. Additionally, there will be a chopper hovering over the valley for additional difficulty. There are a lot of soldiers about. This is a really good late game sequence, especially with Code Talker on your back, limiting you to small firearms. If you did not defeat the skulls, you have a theoretically easier time of it. The soldiers will go in skull puppet mode, and skull snipers will resume their posts on both sides of the mansion. The soldiers are much easier to work around in this mode, and can't trigger an alert phase if they see you. They are tenacious, but if you avoid the snipers, it's pretty easy. And of course, you can take out the skulls too at this point if you want. Once on the chopper, Code Talker keeps laying down the details of the breakout at Mother Base, the vocal cord parasites, and metallic archaea. We'll run down all that in a second, but first, the Pequod is overtaken by what appears to be a dust devil, or tornado. But the cloud of dust not only takes down the chopper, but actively rusts the outer metal. That's because it is metallic archaea, which again, please hold. Snake pulls Code Talker out of the chopper, which crashed into the Nova Braga airport map. The pilots are dead. Once Snake is clear of the wreckage, he realizes they are under siege by the armor unit of the Skulls, plus all the puppet soldiers who are patrolling the airport. So the armor unit battle, I think this might be the only point where you actually have to fight the Skulls. Yeah. Um, which makes sense because it is like the late, last and late game encounter with them. Um, and this is the armor unit, meaning... Though they have life bars, um, at any point they can fully armor up, which totally refills their life bar to an armor level. So you have to whittle that all the way down before you can resume depleting their life. They're like a battle damage years. They can regenerate and they have unlimited, because they're already injured, they have unlimited stamina for fighting. That's always always what I said when I had battle damage action figures. This guy can't be killed because he's already hurt. (laughs) You can't you can't, can't take out this shredder. He's too powerful. Well, that well, to be fair, that applies to uh, punished Venom Snake as well, in a yeah. sense. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so with this mission, usually, usually I just go like heavy firearms. Yeah. Um, is what I do. Um, on the extreme version, I usually deploy with D Walker, just because I'll you know if I have my uh, Walker gear equipped with like the strongest Gatling gun and armor, like it's just more ammo I can use because yeah, you e- you either need to do a Fulton resupply or you need to work in a fair amount of CQC um, into your gunfire because you you're going to run out of ammo, especially if they keep refilling their life. A Fulton resupply? What is this, Peace Walker? <laughs> no, you have to do that in this game too. I know, but Peace Walker, you have to do it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, it is nowhere near as intrusive, which I think is really smart. Yeah. Um, uh, for this game, uh, but uh, usually, like I like start the mission. Like, first of all, I try to get clear of Code Talker because if he gets hurt or whatever, you know, that dies. Oh, and because the metallic archaea rusts all the metal around you, if you do deploy with D Walker, um, and the skulls keep showing up and misting around you, that will rust D Walker and knock it out of commission as well. Yeah. Um. So you can only. G- you can deploy with the tank, but the tank will get rusted up and sent back to Mother Base or whatever at the end. The other thing to note, I think the sniper uh, fight is the only one that's different than what I'm about to describe. But if you defeat the skulls or if you defeat a skull, you kind of need to extract them then and there. Because if you take them all out, then within a couple of minutes, they're all going to just magically like fly away yeah. um, and not allow you to extract the body. So as you take them out in this mission, one of the things is to extract all four skull unit members. You have to like find time to actually Fulton them out while you're still fighting the other guys. With the skulls defeated, Snake leaves with Code Talker on the next chopper out and delivers him to the quarantine platform where he begins his treatment of the sick. Many have already succumbed, and we see the survivors being burned dead in rows of caskets, evocative of what what we'll see later in this game in shining lights, even in death. But let's finish with the exposition Code Talker dumps on you, namely, what are the vocal cord parasites, metallic archaea, and what it all stands for. Vocal cord parasites are also called the curse of the forked tongue. Based off what was recovered from the end and further parasites recovered by the Chinese philosophers found in permafrost up in northern regions, 
These parasites are believed to have given man the power of speech in the first place, making it evolutionarily significant. It ties it to themes of learning to walk upright for Venom Snake and Sahelanthropus. Skullface had Kotalker weaponize them into killers based on language, his ethnic cleansers. Skullface was infected with all vocal cord parasites except for the English strain, which is why he only speaks in that language. His goal, ultimately, is to wipe English off the face of the earth. Between the US and UK, it is the key language of empire. Way more on this next time out. Three vials of the English strain remain. One was already used, on quiet, as a backup plan to kill Big Boss, which we'll get into when we get to a quiet exit. One destroyed after Skullface and Sahelanthropus are stopped at chapter's end, and one that Mantis takes and Eli uses in the Kingdom of the Fly scenario, also coming soon. The vocal cord parasites we see in play here can be disarmed with a peace pipe, which is why we see Code Talker and Snake ripping a bowl. The cure is Wolbachia, a bacteria that turns male into female parasites, preventing reproduction, like Jurassic Park, but also death finds a way here. Um, This is also a real-life treatment, too. It was used to combat the Zika virus in 2016. The cure in-universe causes impotence, which, okay. And then the one who covers parasites are the ones that were used on the skulls and quiet, which act as the host skin. And I don't know if we mentioned earlier, but the vocal cord parasite strain that is ravaging mother base is the Kikongo strain, and that's the one you have to identify and quarantine. Metallic archaea, on the other hand, are artificially modified subcultures of archaea, single-celled organisms, that could be used to manipulate organic and non-organic materials. And these are called metallic archaea because they subsist on metal. Metallic archaea is used to explain a lot of the speculative fiction and supernatural happenings in this game, Sahelanthropus' mobility and weapons, the skulls puppeting soldiers, etc. There are three types of metallic archaea. There's uranium enrichment metallic archaea, which can be used to activate nuclear materials or go nuclear itself. Sahelanthropus had this built into it as its self-destruct function. There's puppet archaea, which is used for controlling troops like zombies. And finally, there's corrosive archaea, the kind that brings down Venom Snake's chopper to set off this last battle. It will also rust vehicles and walker gears as discussed. Sahelanthropus' weapons use this metallic archaea as well, which can be used to manipulate metal so it allows the sword to go flexible into a whip and vice versa. This could also be used to deteriorate nuclear weapons and their controls, those which Skullface plans to sell to others. In effect, he can decide if and when his customers can use his nukes. Part of the tests he was running with Kotalker were not just using metallic archaea to start a nuclear event, but also to prevent them from happening. In this scenario, conventional nukes would lose all power, and the superpowers become powerless. Controlling both nukes and the vocal cord parasites makes Skullface a threat to everyone on this planet, and perhaps the most world-threatening of any Metal Gear Solid villain to date. Feeling the urgency of the situation, Kaz, Snake, and Ocelot return to their bread and butter, torturing Huey, here in room 101, another call-out to George Orwell's 1984. Don't worry, we'll finally talk about 1984 next episode. Threatening Huey with metallic archaea, they eventually learn that Sahelanthropus is most likely at OKB Zero, an old fortress built by the Soviet philosophers. Skullface had wiped out the Russians in the camp, and XOF was in full control. And that's where we'll leave it, as all of Diamond Dogs mobilizes to finally show down Skullface and Sahelanthropus.
That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsoundsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sounds Frontiers at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll find me covering the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, uh, and also... <laughs> Uh, shit. What else do I cover? Oh, uh, Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> House of the Dragon. That's happening at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've still been Brian, who's surprised that this is the first time in his life that Manu has forgotten about Game of Thrones. <laughs> it is no nation we inhabit, but a language is my, is my sign off. <laughs> it, it took, what, 67 episodes for me to finally just completely uh, pooch on the sign-off for the episode. So not not a bad ratio, I would say. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, can't wash this blood from our hands. There's Puppet Archaea, which is used for controlling troops like zombies. (coughs) Shit.